Well, over these last uh, over these last few weeks, we have been deliberately seeking the Lord to go deeper into His Word, and then deeper in our experience and appreciation of His Word. And over these next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to ask the Lord to give us a broader perspective because we're going to extend ourselves and take in a bigger picture, a wider picture. So in many ways, where we've been going deep in these last few weeks, in these next few weeks, we're going to be going wide. Of course, Paul prays, does he not, for the recipients of the Ephesian letter that they would be rooted and grounded in love so that together with all the saints, they would have power to recognize, to understand, to appreciate how deep and high and wide and long is the love of God. And so we're going to ask the Lord to give us a depth and, uh, and an understanding and an appreciation of where God's love extends and to whom it extends. And we're going to do that as we continue to read from Luke's gospel. Today we're going to go to Luke chapter 13. We're only going to read just a few verses today and um, we'll see what it is that the Lord says to us through this. Let's read together. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, to understand the background, of course, and we've mentioned this before, we need to understand the religious context, which was a context where the teachers of the law and the religious elite explained to everybody that everything that happened in a person's life was the consequence of God's blessing or judgment. Now, uh, although that might well be something as we delve into the scriptures, we can, we can begin to understand in terms of God's sovereignty, what Jesus is wanting to outline here, and he's wanting the disciples especially to understand, is that there are no worse people, there are no better people, in the eyes or from the perspective of God's holiness. If you're on the moon and you look at the earth, you can't tell how high the mountains are. From the perspective of God's holiness, there's no difference between one sinner and the next. We're all in sin. We're all in the same condition and 
whether the condition has acted within us or has been embraced by us to differing degrees, we're still in the same condition. And this is something that, that Jesus wants us to understand because, because, of course, you and I are always trapped in this thought, if we're not careful, that the particular things of our life, the circumstances of our life, are somehow tied to the particular things that we've done. Before we know it, we're running a checklist of the good and the bad things that we've done and we're adding them up against the things that have happened in our week. And of course, it means that there is no sense that there is a devil who has some agency in our life, that there is neutrality in events, that actually there's no divine or spiritual agent behind them. It's just the weather, for instance. And of course, there's no sense in which the particularities of people's capacity and, and power to influence us uh, is, is important or significant in our life. Sovereignty and the sovereignty of God is something that's taught from the first page to the last. But God's desire is that we understand that within his sovereignty, he is operating in a world in which he has given us freedom, and not only us freedom, but perhaps even more shockingly, he has given the agents of the enemy freedom to operate. Now, it might be difficult for us to understand that at this stage. And there will, of course, be a day when all will be judged, both the rebellious angels that have followed Satan in his quest of conquest and all human beings. There is a day of judgment, but there is also a day between now and then, many days, it would appear, fewer and fewer, of course, as each day passes. There are still days in which your capacity to choose is still by God's choice and sovereignty given to you and also given to the enemy and his agents. So it's tremendously important that we understand that. And of course, it's tremendously important that we recognize that in the way that we function in our life. And so as we pray, as Jesus taught us to pray, we're praying constantly for the kingdom of God, his kingship and his, his rule and his honour to be manifest in our lives and in the lives of the people around us, that we live in a constant dependency upon him for our daily sustenance, our, our daily bread, that we're looking to him to forgive us of all the things that, that, have, that have hindered our relationship with him this last day as we, as we pray forgiveness upon all those that have in any way offended or, or done wrong to us. But of course, we also pray that in the midst of this world in which God's sovereignty has allowed human freedom and the freedom of, of the enemy's agency, in this world, we pray for God to protect us from temptation and to deliver us from the evil one. 
This is how we're supposed to pray. And this is how we're supposed to function and live. And at the very heart of it, at the very depth of it, is this very big and broad truth. And it is this. We're all equal in the eyes of God. You see, the people around Jesus believed that there were some who were superior and others who were inferior. They genuinely believed that. They believed that there were some who were further up the ladder of God's blessing and others who were further down it. And Jesus is wanting to make the absolute clear point that there are only two categories of human beings, lost and saved. Lost and saved. But even if you're saved, you're not better than the lost. And if you're lost, you're not worse than the saved. It's an interesting one, this, isn't it? We look at each other and we say, well, of course, I, I, don't have, uh, I don't have those thoughts of superiority of other people. I just think that some people are not as good as me. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we think that believing that other people are inferior to us doesn't necessarily mean that we think that we're superior to them. But of course it does. And what Jesus is wanting to get a hold of, because this was rife in the world in which he lived because of the way that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law interpreted the scriptures. This this idea was rife. He wanted to make sure that his disciples understood that there was absolute equality. Equality in two things. Equality in the condition of our lost state and equality in our need for his grace. And if there is equality in the lost state of humanity and equality in our need for God's grace, then there cannot be a superiority or an inferiority. Now, What's interesting about um, Luke's, Luke's uh, gospel here and the Acts of the Apostles is that, is that when you read it, you get a sense that he's bringing out themes that are enormously important to him and they appear to be themes that are, that are themes that he wants to undergird for reasons that are his own. And, and Bible scholars, and this is something that I've... Uh, thought about a lot over the years, Bible scholars have often wondered whether what Luke is actually doing is producing documents for the defense of Paul, a dear friend of his and his mentor and guide, documents for the defense of Paul before the Jewish religious elite who were bringing charges against Paul before Caesar. Now, Paul went before Caesar Claudius and according to the external histories, 
very credible external histories of the Bible, Paul was released. And, um, and the documents for his defense worked on that occasion. And then some years later, he came before Nero, uh, a mad emperor, who, of course, not only killed Paul, but ensured that Peter was crucified upside down outside the walls of Rome. Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, was beheaded. But on that first occasion that Paul went before Caesar, there were documents brought for his defence and and the suggestion is that, that Luke here is preparing these documents and that passages like today would begin to chip away at the presuppositions of those that were bringing charges against Paul. Because you see, the people that were bringing charges against Paul were bringing charges because Paul was bringing Gentiles into the people of God and making them equal with the Jewish nation, with the ancient people of God. He was saying that Gentiles were ones who had equal access into the blessings of God something that was so scandalous to them that they went after Paul with such murderous intent that they chased him from town to town, seeking his death. And when they finally were able to get him incarcerated in Jerusalem, it it required all of the might of the Roman battalion to secure his safety. And he was kept, as you remember, in a prison in Caesarea by the coast. And it was there that he claimed his Roman citizenship and said, I want to be tried before Caesar if these people are gonna come after me in the way that they are. And so Paul goes on this long journey and we'll look at it together in future months, on this long journey to Rome. And when he gets there, he of course is enormously successful in his mission of evangelism and people from the household of Caesar come to know the Lord Jesus and even the guard to whom he's chained comes to know the Lord. Paul, when he's there, writes several letters. One of them is the letter to Ephesians. Listen, listen to these words. As a prisoner, For the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You see... Paul speaking as a prisoner, knowing who it was that was bringing the charges was reflecting deeply on what it was that Jesus had revealed to him about the equality and the status of all people before God and our need for grace. And he knows that if all of us need grace, then all of us need to be humble because there's no way that we can in any way assert ourselves or suggest that we're better than anyone else. Of course, we need to be humble. And 
if we're all equal, then the only legitimate way of expressing community is to express community in unity because we're all the same. We're all in need and there's no difference between us. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Do we get it? Do we see what it is that Paul is saying? That this fundamental equality leads to a basic understanding of our unity. And a basic understanding of our unity means that there is a oneness that, that starts everything out. There is a unity that is the way that we are to understand ourselves. A unity in community. But then he goes on. And this is where you may well be challenged this morning. Because I'm going to teach some things now that I believe are absolutely consistent with Scripture, are absolutely what the Word says, but are completely different to what the majority of Christians have heard. So listen carefully as we read on. Verse 7. But to each one of us, just before we go on any further, how many people does that include in the room? Is it just some of you? Includes you, that's great. Anybody who doesn't include? Nobody's prepared to, Aidan says it's everybody. But to each one of us, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Paul is nothing if he's not an interesting person. I mean, you know, he's, he's just about to teach probably one of those profound truths of, of New Testament theology in regard to the church, and he's gone off on a rabbit run. What the dickens is he talking about? He ascended and descended and this is... What is he talking about? Well, you see, he's like you and I. When he's talking, he has pictures in his mind. And the picture he has in his mind is the picture of Jesus ascending into heaven. And then he's thinking, well, here I am in Rome. And of course, they have these pictures of their conquering heroes ascending the steps of the Senate. In fact, every city in the Roman Empire had some experience of a, of a famous general returning. And this is what they did whenever they returned from a great victory going right back to the days of Julius Caesar. 
the general would take the booty of battle and they would melt down the gold and the silver and they would begin to print, to mint coins. Now, these coins became currency, but initially they were just a souvenir of victory. And the general would enter the city, in this case Rome, he would enter the city and he would have a great chest of gold and silver coins. And on those coins would be the head of the general and the name of the general. Now, very often the general became the emperor. And so when Jesus is asked, should we pay taxes to Rome? He says, give me one of their coins. He says, whose face is this? And they say, Caesar's. And he says, whose name is it? Caesar's. He said, well, it obviously belongs to Caesar, so give it to him. But obviously you've been imprinted with another image and you've got another name on you, so give yourself to, to God. So here are the generals. They're, they're coming into the city. They're scattering the coins. And what they're doing is they're sharing. They're sharing in the bounty of victory. And so as they throw the coins, the crowds are sharing in the bounty of victory. And then the general will ascend the steps of the Senate and he will have the crown placed upon him of, of leaves and branches and he will be acclaimed a victor. Jesus as he ascends into heaven, takes captive the enemy who has run riot in the world. He's chained him for the day of his judgment and execution. And as he ascends into heaven, he takes of his victory and throws it out to the crowd of his people and as they receive the gift and the blessing of his victory, each blessing bears his identity and his name. You see, Jesus is the one who is the first in all things. Jesus is the zenith who is the, the model of all things. And as Paul goes on to explain, he is the one who shares his ministry with us. Verse 11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. How many people were included in Jesus sharing his ministry? Everybody? Now what you do in math is you, you take the thing out, the, the thing in parenthesis and you put that on one side once you've looked at it, yeah? Okay, so I'll just do that. But to each one of us, grace has been given 
as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Anybody excluded from that particular description? You see, here's the problem. We've read and taught that text as if it's about leaders in the church, and it isn't. It's about you. It's about me. It's about all of us. Because there is a radical equality in the heart of God, in the way that he deals with his people. And he says, if you're part of the body of Christ, then you can have the ministry of Christ. If you're part of the body of Jesus, then you get to do the ministry of Jesus. And what does the ministry of Jesus look like? Well, he's the first apostle because he's the sent out one from heaven. He's the first prophet because he comes and declares God's word. He's the first evangelist because he comes and tells us the good news of the coming kingdom. He's the first shepherd. That's the word pastor and shepherd is the same word. He's the first shepherd because he's the good shepherd who leads the flock. He's the first teacher because we call him rabbi. Jesus is the first And when we are included in him by faith, as he extends his grace to us and we receive his grace by faith, we become one with him. Nobody in the body of Christ is excluded from being part of the Lord Jesus. And so therefore, you are included in his ministry. And he has given some to be apostles. Some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, shepherds, same word, some to be teachers. And you say, you must be kidding. I mean, I did a, I did a questionnaire and I got the gift of helps. Or I, I did the questionnaire and I, I got the gift of giving money. I'm sure I'm not included in that list. Well, you may not feel like you're included in that list, but I can absolutely assure you that there is nothing in this text that would suggest that you are excluded. Now, when I first began teaching this 25 years ago, people thought I was completely bonkers. I put it into various different books, and uh, friends who came through my church at the time heard me teaching it. Some of them were really challenged by it. Others uh, were really excited by it. But eventually, I would have to say, everybody was convinced by it. One guy called Alan Hirsch, who's now uh, really quite a famous character around the world in terms of missional thinking, came through. He was just in from Australia. And he said to me, he said, I've never ever heard that before. And he went away and thought about it and, and has come back and said to me how deeply convicted and convinced he is of this and has started a whole movement called Q5 around the world, seeking to liberate the church into an understanding that everybody is a minister. Everybody in this room is one of the five. Now, it may be that we have different levels of responsibility as we take on one of those five things. But here's the thing. If you have a sense 
of your significance and importance within the body, it changes everything. It changes everything. For me, it was quite an interesting journey to get to this point where I began to see this fresh word in, I, I just have to tell you guys, I'm looking up here and uh, they've got the clock for me so that I know how long it is. It's 10,037 and 19 seconds. Did you know it's on seconds up there? It does have a minus in front of it as well, so maybe, that, maybe that's even worse, I don't know. <laughs> but it doesn't help me at all to know how long I've preached or how long I've got. So, so here's the, <laughs> thank you. So, so here's the thing, before we get to communion today, I want you to have considered which of the five the Lord may have called you to be. Because at the beginning of what it is that we just read, Paul says this, as a prisoner of the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. It's so much easier to live a life worthy of a calling if we know what it is. I went, to, uh, I went to seminary at 18 and I had no idea what my calling was other than what my professors told me it was. And so they said to me, well, Mike, you need to learn how to teach and preach in and out of season and be ready on every occasion <laughs> to share the word of God in a voice that makes you sound like Winston Churchill. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I did what they told me to do. I, I learned how to expound the text and to exegete the text. And, and it was interesting because it was funny, but I, I kept on doing it. But eventually I kind of got into this zone which I called burnout. I mean, I, you know, I did my best. I, I, I did it every day, every way. You know, I was rocking out the word every time I possibly could. But for some reason, I just didn't seem to have the grace to make that the most important thing in my life. I mean, I knew the Bible was enormously important, of course, but to be a teacher? So I kind of shared that with a couple of the, uh, the, uh, the, the professors and they went, oh, okay then. Hmm. We knew there was something a bit strange about you from the beginning. And they said, well, you know, some of the reports that we've had are that you're not very caring. So, um, I have no idea where they got that from. Mostly on the rugby field, I think, probably. <laughs> they said, uh, maybe you need to learn a bit about being a pastor. And I said, oh, yeah, that'd be good, professor. Uh, maybe I should do that. And so they, 
they said, uh, you need to learn how to be a pastor. So I learned the difference between client-centered counseling and biblical counseling. I learned various different methods of counseling. I, I learned this one. And, and this one. And I had the same experience. I mean, I, I really tried to be as caring as possible and I really tried to listen as carefully as I could, but I just burned out. And by the end of it, I could feel myself inside of myself going, just pull yourself together. What's the matter with you? And I knew that that was wrong, so I never actually ever said it, but you know what I mean? Do you ever feel that? So I kind of got into this strange burnout zone. So I, I shared this with some of my leaders and the professors and the like. By now, I'd really almost got to the point of being ordained and, and got out there and, and they said to me, you know, maybe, maybe you're called to be an evangelist. And I said, wow, I, I'd never thought of that. And they said, well, we're gonna put you, we're gonna put you in, in touch with a, a, a well-known evangelist and you're gonna spend some time with him, you're gonna go around the country with him and learn what he does and calling people of faith. And, and I thought, great, I'll do I'll, wonderful. So I, I learned how to do it, it was amazing. We had the most fun. We'd go to all these different places. We'd go to university campuses and, and it was great. And I'd see all these young people coming to Christ. I loved it. It was wonderful. We went round on a, a tour of Ireland in a, in a big old um, Land Rover, towing a trailer in which we had lights. And, um, and we used to do evangelistic, uh, evangelistic discos. And we'd have, all, we'd have all the music going and the, the lights and the, the smoke going. And, and then kind of halfway through one of the songs, you know, they'd be kind of doing their dance. And then I'd step out on the, onto the dance floor and say, did anybody take notice of that lyric? And they'd be going, you know, frozen in motion. Kyrie eleison, anybody know what that means? This is something for the teenagers. Um, there was a band at the time, it was a kind of a secular band, but they had this, this song, and it was uh, Lord Have Mercy, but in, in the original language, Kyrie eleison. And so I'd step in, you know, and maybe it'd be another song, and, and, and these young people would kind of get interested, and you, you'd, you'd see them dancing, but they'd be, it'd be a bit like, you know, when you do musical chairs, Everybody's kind of wondering when the music's going to stop at any moment. And so I'd, I'd come out and we'd see, we saw lots and lots and lots of young people come to know the Lord. But honestly, whew, I can remember getting into burnout. Wowee. I mean, I really, really wanted them to go to heaven. But some days I thought, man, I just wish they'd go to hell. Did I, did I say that out loud? I didn't really mean that. You know, it was like, are you kidding me? I've got to do another evangelistic presentation? Oh, no. I'm only joking. But um, I got to the end of that and I spoke to my, um, I spoke to my pastors and my, my bishops and people, you know, I said, what do you think? 
They said, well, we're running out of options, really, buddy. We're not quite sure, but maybe we should get you hooked up with some prophetic people. And I said, is that even allowed now? And they said, well, not really, but, but in your case, we'll make an exception. And so I, I spent a lot of time with people who had remarkable prophetic ministries. And um, again, I learned enormously how to, how to hear the voice of God and to share it and to, and to minister that into the lives of other people. But again, the same experience. Yeah. And the reason that there's burnout, of course, is because we're given grace to fulfill the calling that God's given us. And grace means that it's really hard to burn out because God's providing all of the energy. Does that make sense? And as I was going through all of these things, I, I noticed that I do crazy stuff like, you know, I, I, I kind of got through the, the teacher pastor thing and I'd learned how to do all of that. But when I was in burnout, I'd go and maybe plant a youth church in the inner city of London just to, for fun during the summer. And people say, what? I said, well, you know, you've got to do something, haven't you? They said, what are you talking about? Nobody does that for fun. And I, I found that I would always be drawn into the apostolic things. Being sent out to plant and pioneer new things. And so it took years and years and years. But eventually, I looked the Lord full in the face and I said, have you called me to some kind of apostolic ministry? And at that moment, it was like the heavens opened and I heard the confirmation of the Father saying, yes, at last. And of course, we've seen hundreds of churches planted worldwide. We've seen movements of disciples on every continent. And I would say, it's because I finally got to the point of recognizing what it was I was called to be. What are you called to be? What are you called to be? You may be like me, where you need the interaction of the people around you. The way that, that Paul puts it here in this text is that you need the equipping of the rest of the body. You need the equipping of the rest of the body to help you to become a little bit more like them so that you realise who you really are. You see, for me, over these years, and the Lord has got a lot of work to do still yet, over these years, I've become more familiar with what it, what it means to understand the ministry of Jesus because Jesus is the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor and the teacher. And as I've learned from the teachers and the pastors and the evangelists and the prophets and the other apostolic people, so I've learned what it means to live a life on mission and in ministry like Jesus. Does that make sense to anybody? And no one is excluded from this journey. You see, here's the problem. Here's the problem. 
So many of us have been sold a lie. And the lie is this. Your job is to support and applaud the people who are doing ministry. You've been sold the lie that your job is to be faithful in turning up, faithful in doing your best, but basically supporting the people who've been called to do the ministry around you. And it's a lie. And can you imagine how happy the devil is every time one more of God's children believes that lie? Just think about it for a minute. How delighted would the devil be if the vast majority of Christians missed their calling? Misunderstood the nature and the basis of God's apportionment of grace to them. Wow, you've got some big conversations this week, haven't you, at House Church? Now, you know, I've over the years tried to provide all kinds of ways to help us get at this. And so there's a, there's a questionnaire in the back of uh, building a discipling culture that I know many of you have used and hopefully will use again, which will begin to give you a way of thinking about how God has formed you for a particular ministry. But the thing that I think the Lord wants to say to us this morning is this. Everybody's included. Nobody is left out. Nobody's left out. And when you receive the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God doesn't leave some of the tools behind in heaven. He comes with his whole toolkit. And he enters your life. And as he enters your life, he brings all of his gifts with him. He doesn't leave any of them behind. And when he brings his gifts with him, it's like a big tool bag. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time with builders and bakers and candlestick makers. I mean, you just get to spend your time with people over the years, don't you? The thing that's interesting to me is, when I look in the, in the toolkit of a carpenter or a plumber, it's pretty much the same tools, isn't it? I mean, there's a few specialist things, but it's pretty much the same thing. The toolkit for an apostle is exactly the same as a toolkit for a teacher. Because it's the toolkit that the Holy Spirit brings when he enters our life. The question is not whether you have the toolkit. The question is whether you know your calling, your profession, Anybody now realize what profession might mean? What you profess that God has called you to be? And as we interact with one another, the objective is this. Here's a pastor, but he needs some corners filling out. He needs a bit more evangelism. He needs a bit more prophecy. He needs a bit more apostolic. Why? Because 
only some of us have been called to be pastors, shepherds, but all of us have been called to care. Only some of us have been called to be evangelists, but all of us have been called to witness. Only some of us have been called to teach, but all of us have been called to rest on the word. Only some of us have been called to be prophets, but all of us are supposed to hear the voice of God. Only some of us have been called to be apostles, but all of us are being sent out by Jesus on his mission to the world. Do you get it? And it's as we interact with one another and as we receive the ministry of Jesus from one another, so we grow to look more and more like Jesus until the full measure of the stature of Christ is seen in us individually and collectively. That's what Paul is going for. And it begins with a radical equality. It begins with a radical understanding that there's no one who is superior and there's no one who's inferior. And all, as we come together, recognising the fundamental unity of the work of God, recognise that in the unity there is diversity and the diversity points to the person of Jesus who is the forerunner of all of the ministries. Let me read these words to you one last time. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That may be the first time that any of you have heard that taught. I really encourage you. It it, it may not it's going to maybe take more than one go at it. it. certainly did for me. It took me several years. Talk about it in your house church. Talk about it around your kitchen table. What has God called you to be? And how, how are you fulfilling that calling? Let's pray together.